Nashville Soccer Club still unbeaten. They have strutted in to one of the castles of Major League Soccer, and they refuse to bend the knee. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast International Break Edition. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SE coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SE radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I'm Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com. I had to use proprietor again since you roasted me for not saying it last week, but I mean, I've, been co- I've been covering the uh, the team online longer than anybody. It's the fanciest and best possible word to use in your situation. What is it? I mean, owner? editor i don't know i think proprietor is the all-in-one word you have to use and i just have to make fun of you for continuing to use it uh, thanks to moon taxi for the music behind us at the beginning and the end thanks to esp 94.9 for the highlights as well as my tv 30 which you'll hear from in just a little bit nashville sc one of two remaining unbeatens in major league soccer in unlikely fashion after a historic result in atlanta and we'll tell you why it was historic and not just really enjoyable if you were wearing gold in just a minute for the third time this year though the boys in gold rallied from two goals down it's the first time though tim they've done it on the road yeah i'm back on team undefeated doesn't mean much it's more about the point total uh, a, a team that i actually never left but road draws are basically a best case scenario at least you know kind of when you have the expectations going into a game that it's the best that you can expect in this league and when you add in the rivalry factor the strength of atlanta united's team historically and, and the way that the game played out with the startling comeback this was probably the most impressive game of the year when the dust settled I would agree with you, and I've had conversations with folks about this, comparing this one to the New England 2-0 win. And certainly when you beat a team that's top of the table, I think that's a noteworthy result. But going to Atlanta and doing what this team did, especially in the fashion in which it did it, I I don't see how you top that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't imagine that there will be many more games with the excitement level and the positive result in the end. Even though it was a draw, it felt so positive for Nashville SC at the end of the 90 minutes. Tony Husband, the TV voice of Nashville SC, our guest today. We wanted to interview him because we know that you're familiar with a lot of his signature calls for Nashville Soccer Club since he came across the pond after the pandemic break last year to call Nashville SC games. But I think a lot of folks haven't gotten the chance to get to know Tony personally because... Again, he's been like the rest of us in quarantine and and in situations where where he's not been able to connect. So we wanted to connect with him. If you've read Tim's work before, Tim put together a really strong profile last year of Tony. We're going to build on that and have some conversation with him today about what it's like to journey across the pond and about his uh, maybe not so secret, but secret to many of you, NFL fandom and some tributes he has made to some local broadcasters here in the market. We really appreciated the chance to sit down with Tony, and we think you're going to relish the conversation that we have with him. We wanted a match that would give us a lot to discuss, Tim, over the international break, in addition to a great interview with Tony. And after 80 minutes of fairly stagnant soccer for NSC, we ended up getting what we wanted. And so today we're going to hit some historic gold nuggets in our early shout. After Tony's interview, we'll talk tactics. The embrace consensus question today both NSC goals came from the 4-4-2, and it's a formation with which Nashville has started pre-Atlanta for a couple matches before that. So is it the X's and O's? Is it the Jimmy's and Joe's? Is that the formation that should be the default for Nashville SC? In the mailbag, we'll ask the question of how Nashville SC should consider using its extra general allocation money. There's a lot of roster monopoly money sitting there. 
Should the boys in goal dip into that to bring in some attacking talent, a defensive reinforcement? What should they do with that money, if anything, in the near term? We'll talk about that. And then, well, international break is upon us now, and call-ups are becoming official. We'll talk about what that means for Nashville SC and several key players on the roster. Tim, if you're ready, let's get into our early shout. Let's do it. Here's another one of them. It's Miles Robinson of Atlanta moving forward. Slips it left side for Bello. His cross in front, tapped in goal. 2-0 Atlanta. Lopez this time. They've opened the roof, and he's blown what's left of it off. After that second Atlanta goal, it, things looked bleak for Nashville SC. ATL scored in the sixth minute of the first half and the sixth minute of the second half. They had dominated possession, and Tim, things just didn't look very good. But then quickly and surprisingly, they turned around. And CJ Sapong cutting in. Sapong squares it in front. Across the shot block. Rebound. Scores! Hadi Mukhtar! Tie game! Nashville has reduced the loudest stadium this world has seen in a year down to silence. Nashville made a, a formation switch. Didn't change the personnel too much, but uh, for whatever reason, it seemed to work out especially well for Hani Mukhtar. Obviously, we discussed in the open that he had a huge game. He was named to the MLS Team of the Week. He was the number three finisher in the MLS Player of the Week voting this week. So had a great game, and most of that greatness came after the 79th minute. Hani Mukhtar, now the team leader this season in goal scored with three after the brace. Let's hear from Gary Smith about his thoughts on the contest. The character and the, um, the internal fiber that this group have shown on many occasions was there for all to see. And I just don't think too many people come back from a two, a two goal down situation uh, in, in this stadium in front of this crowd on this field against this team. So a very pleased and maybe a bit surprised Gary Smith. And he had mentioned that the goals that Nashville gave up were perhaps a bit on the soft side. Nonetheless, it is extremely difficult to come back from multiple goals down at Atlanta United or against Atlanta United. Tim, that's the first time that they have, have had a lead greater than one goal and not gone on to win in their history. And this was not just a good result for Nashville SC. In those ways, it was historic. Yeah, I think when you look at what Atlanta United has done over the first four-plus years of their existence, it has been basically borderline elite play. And obviously last year was not that case, but we think this is closer to the 2017 through 2019 versions of Atlanta United. And so for Nashville to do something that had never been done before is absolutely incredible. And I think it speaks to the character of this team that, that Gary Smith did mention in that quote. And Nashville wasn't just down to a team with a pretty good attack. In fact, Atlanta came into the match having scored fewer goals than Nashville this year. But it's the way they possessed the ball. Atlanta led Major League Soccer in possession. And I think, Tim, it's even more impressive when you consider this is a team that, that is tailor-made to hold on to leads, you would think, because of the way they possess the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Once they get that two-goal lead, they, they have the ability to pass it around. They have incredible technical ability. It's going to be really hard to get the ball off of them. Um, for the most part, we, we saw the way Nashville scored. They didn't necessarily need to take the ball away. They made the most of the very few opportunities that they had. And only the second brace in Nashville SE's MLS history. The other person to perform that, well, it was Hani Mukhtar as well against Houston Dynamo on the road in a 3-1 win. Daniel Rios did it four times in USL in 2019, the only other current player to notch one in the club's 
broader history, and Nashville's never had a hat trick at the professional level. Now, Tim, it was a big statement, I think, for Hani Mukhtar. Nashville's two wins came with him starting the match on the bench, and I think perhaps a couple of moments he absolutely needed to have to, to stay in the equation as Nashville has tinkered with that 4-4-2 that typically eliminates him from the equation. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting is you mentioned that game against the Houston Dynamo last year. That was another game where he was finally back in the starting lineup after struggling through some minor injuries. Gets back in, makes the team of the week. I believe he was actually the MLS player of the week at that time. So this is a guy who kind of faces down some of the things that look like they would be adversity for him and, and turns them to his advantage for sure. Going into a 4-4-2 then, he has a couple forwards on top of him. And I think that opened up maybe some opportunities when he wasn't the guy that Atlanta was keying on defensively. Yeah, and uh, you saw his goals happen through situations where the ball just kind of was loose in the box after Nashville had an offensive chance or when they were trying to work their way into an offensive chance. He popped up in places that Atlanta probably wasn't expecting to see him pop up because he doesn't typically play in that position. And I think it played to his advantage. You know, if you have, um, you know, everybody loves him, but if you have Alex Muehl ending up with the ball in the spots that Hani got it, you probably do not see the comeback get completed. Meanwhile, here's a fun stat for you. For those who like to think of Nashville SC as exclusively a defensive club, instead of one that's maybe fueled and driven first and foremost by that defense, Nashville SC has given up two goals to an opponent nine times in its Major League Soccer history. And in those matches now, Tim, it is won or drawn more times then it's lost. We're talking, of course, three this year in Cincy, Montreal, and Atlanta, twice in 2020 with Orlando on the road, that last regular season match, and Atlanta at home in the 4-2 win. A little different in that because, of course, Nashville led the whole way in that one. That's a pretty good ratio for when you're giving up two goals for any team, especially one that's that's characterized as a bit of a defensive club. Is that comeback tendency, you think, becoming a part of the club's DNA, or do you see the flip side of that, that it's really just more of a function of Nashville's tendency to give up early goals this season? Yeah. I remember in the first USL season, there was a stat going around that Nashville hadn't really ever come back to win a game from behind. And, and my response was, well, they don't really go down a whole lot. <laughs> right. So they haven't had problem. the opportunity. We're seeing the opposite of it now, but you want to have both of those aspects. You want to have the defense that doesn't force you to, to mount a comeback, but you want to have the explosive offense that gives you the opportunity to accomplish anything that you need on that end of the pitch too. Obviously the, the goal for Gary Smith is to, is to marry the two together. And he's been pretty consistent over the years talking about how that's what he wants to do. He wants to keep the defense sound, but he also wants to add the scoring on top. Uh, it hasn't quite worked out enough times this year, but I think as this team continues to develop, you will see them do a little bit better job of that. And maybe this international break will give them the chance to get some tweaks that allow them to have solidity on both ends of the pitch to start a game. As we put a bow on the Atlanta draw, now two wins, no losses, and five draws. Nashville SC, the only remaining unbeaten team in the Eastern Conference, one of two in Major League Soccer, along with Seattle. Tim, my question for you, was this a deserved result? Yeah, I think so. When you look at it, especially given that as we mentioned earlier, Atlanta is a particularly hard team to come back against. If you come back against them, you earned it for sure. The expected goals numbers were relatively even. I think the teams were within like a one hundredth of an expected goal at the end of the match. So it's, it, you know, I'm a big XG believer, as everybody who listens to the pod knows. And I think it is very reflective of what did indeed happen on the pitch. Even though Atlanta had more possession, Nashville made the most of what it did have. And Nashville was able to control possession in moments that it needed to, particularly late in the match. They they bounced back and were able to do a good job controlling play. I, I believe the the first 30 minutes, Atlanta had something like 
almost 70% possession. Mm-hmm. But then there was a little stretch there where Nashville actually turned it around and had 80% possession of their own and were able certainly to take advantage of their assertiveness after going down 2-0. I agree with you. I think it's absolutely a, a deserved result, especially when you consider you know, the, the two goals Atlanta scored. That first one, at least, came off a long ball where you know Dave Romney makes an awkward play, an uncharacteristically awkward mm-hmm. play on the ball. He and Walker Zerman get a little bit tied up, and then Joe Willis gets shielded. It, it, it was not the... Uh, the worldy that that typically needs to beat this Nashville defense. As we look toward the international break, let's look beyond it just for a second. And then in our outside in segment, we'll get into the implications of those international matches themselves. New York Red Bulls on the road, a Friday night game, June 18th. I'll have the play-by-play for that one on ESPN 94.9. And then the fun part for Nashville SC supporters, five straight at home in a stretch of 25 days, truly a summer of soccer. But Tim, you know Nashville, glad to have a, a somewhat sweet taste in its mouth heading into 20 days off. Yeah, absolutely. I think if they had lost on Saturday afternoon, they would have felt pretty deflated. It would have really kind of changed the tenor of the, you know, six game unbeaten run to start the year. If it doesn't become seven uh, there, it it feels pretty sad. But, you know, as you mentioned, five straight at home in a stretch of 25 days is, um, you know, the second long homestand for this club already this summer. And you see them front loading, I guess, a lot of those home games. It'll be interesting to see how they handle basically being road warriors at the end of the year, too. Nashville SC unbeaten and yet still looking to climb the table and get itself firmly in playoff position. You know that stretch is going to be crucial to trying to pull that off. All right, so on this podcast, we try to bring you some of the leading voices in the Nashville soccer community and across Major League Soccer. We've had Alexi Lawless on. We've talked with Jillian Sakovitz in Atlanta, a very popular voice, not just there, but also throughout the soccer community. Now let's we landed, talk. We landed the time 2006 person of the year for our opening episode. That's right, and that, of course, was you. <laughs> Yeah, it was almost just as much of a cop-out for us as it was for Time Magazine back in the day. <laughs> and yet it was great for our, our mailbag edition. Keep those mailbag questions coming, by the way. I've got some great ones later. But we wanted to talk to somebody who you know pretty well, at least from his voice, but maybe you don't know him quite like you'd want to because he came to Nashville during a pandemic, and you've been forced to hear him over the airwaves instead of also getting to meet him. Uh, Tony Husband is that voice, the play-by-play voice of Nashville SC on television. I sit with Tony once a week before matches and talk about what we're gonna, how we're going to approach these matches. And I can tell you he's extremely thoughtful about his approach to Major League Soccer. He's not one of those who's going to come across from England and say, we're the home of football. You can only call it football. We're going to do it my way. He's extremely thoughtful and humble. And we think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with him. Here is Tony Husband, voice of Nashville Soccer Club. And we're underway. It's soccer time in Tennessee. Two unbeaten teams, two very different narratives around them at kickoff here in Music City. Alex Wheel. 2-0. His first goal for Nashville. A big goal for Nashville. 16 minutes to play. And with Turner left on the surface... Gary Smith's men on their way to their first win of the 2021 season. Tony Husband is the lead television commentator for Nashville Soccer Club. He joined for the club's inaugural MLS season last year after a prolific career in his native England. In two decades with the BBC, he's covered Olympics, FA Cup Finals, the Champions League, Wimbledon, and much more. He's also a longtime fan of American sports and has hosted coverage of the NFL and Major League Baseball for BBC. His hometown club is Plymouth Argyle, and I can report that he's become quite a Predators fan lately. Tony, thanks for spending time with us. 
Oh, it's great to be with you too, Wes. And uh, I'm very proud that you managed to get Plymouth Argyle into the intro <laughs> because uh, that's good. I'm actually also a, a member of their uh, North American supporters group on uh, on Twitter as well. We have a kind of constant chat going. So uh, an exiled pilgrim who's found a few pilgrims over here. Um, and yes, indeed, um, playoff season has enthralled me with, uh, with the Preds as well. Was hockey ever on your radar before moving to the States or is this a new love for you? Uh, well, I have covered it, and it's funny because we always call it ice hockey in England because uh, you know we have we have field, field hockey. hockey as well, yeah, and and we've done quite well in the Olympics as, as a British team in field hockey. Uh, our women won the gold in Rio, um, but uh, I always quite enjoyed ice hockey. It was a little bit of uh, my kind of again North American kind of interest coming out. So I used to cover uh, a team called the Basingstoke Bison in <laughs> Hampshire. England and uh, the quality wasn't the finest, but uh, they were they were good. And we had another team as well. I used to sometimes go and see um, the Guildford Flames. And the Guildford Flames, uh, here's a little fact: uh, one of their players, uh, his surname was Stewart, and he's Rod Stewart's son. So Rod Stewart, the musician, has a son who plays ice hockey. Uh, so uh, yeah, we had some fun covering some of those teams down the years. But the, the sport is it has a good core audience in the, in the UK, um, but obviously it's not the kind of mass market sport that it is over here. Well, your soccer background is immense, and we'll certainly get to that, but it has been fun discussing other sports with you as well, as I've gotten to know you. You were drawn to the NFL as a child, and, and that continued into your broadcasting days, and, and you mentioned that that is a huge passion of yours as well. That's right, and I think that kind of gets to the point of, of why I was always keen to come over and, and spend some time in the States and work in the States. Is, uh, uh, since being a child, as you said, you know, I, I, I grew up with these, uh, just watching these sports that were starting to be shown on a kind of fledgling UK channel called Channel 4 back in the 80s. And I'm literally a, just a little lad sitting on my dad's knee, and he stuck on this thing called American football, and uh, he was curious about it. And I was just enthralled. I found it fascinating. I love the presentation. I love the glitz and glamour. And I think as well, for someone who was a child growing up in the UK in the 1980s, um, although, of course, soccer or our football were, were, was our national game and remained so, it was also a dark era for the sport in the UK. You know, violence at games was, was prevalent. Uh, the stadiums were falling to pieces. Uh, there were a couple of notable tragedies that, you know, all soccer fans will, will know about. Um, and the NFL and this American television presentation just offered something very, very different. And it really opened my eyes. And so as much as I would always, of course, think of some of the great legendary English broadcasters I grew up watching, but I also grew up watching, you know, a young Al Michaels uh, and Dick Enberg and, and uh, Pat Summerall and John Madden. And I just loved it. And so, you know, when you tell me I had the opportunity now at weekends um, to, to write a tease, to come on the air, I'm sometimes writing that script. And I'm imagining I was that little lad listening to Pat Summerall doing the introduction to say an NFC championship game back in 1987 or something like that. I mean, it's, it's just that kind of stuff. It's dream stuff. Um, and really got, you know, hooked me into that kind of way of, of thinking back then. And uh, that's why I'm, you know, just so, so delighted to be over here and, I'm working in this in this market now. The Al Michaels reference really brings it back to hockey too. That's that's a that's a pro, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course, absolutely, yes, yeah. Without thinking about it, but uh, the miracle on ice, isn't it? Yeah. Do you believe? In what miracles? was the line? Was it? Uh, can Can you believe that or something? Or Do you believe, believe in, in miracles? miracles? Yes. Do you believe in miracles? There we go. Yeah, yeah. No, so, fantastic. Well, and, and Tony, you um, you open a lot of your soccer broadcasts with "It's Soccer Time in Tennessee," and I understand that may be a tribute to a great Tennessee broadcaster, John Ward. That, of course, Tennessee football fans and, and others around the South revere. 
Well, that's right. And as you yourself, uh, you both know, you know, you, you can't do anything in this in this world without, you know, doing your research uh, and, and working very hard to to make sure you've kind of got every angle covered, whether it's for an individual game or indeed for it's a, whether it's for a project or, you know, a role you're going to be doing. Uh, and just in in the time in the off season last season, you know, all that long period we had, of course, where we had no games, uh, I, I got managed to get over here, and um, we, we were just just researching and looking back into you know to, to the history of sport in this amazing state of Tennessee. And I just read about John Ward, and and I knew how big college football was. And so I think for the first home game that we had at Nissan Stadium uh, after uh, the, the, the lockdown, uh, so we started against Miami, I think it was, um, and I felt that night that I wanted to just tip my hat uh, and show my respect to sports broadcasters in this part of the world and show how you know I'm very fortunate to be here. And I just you know tweaked so- uh, football time in Tennessee to soccer time in Tennessee. And I think when I initially did it, I thought maybe I'll just just do it that one time. Uh, and then it was amazing to how um, a couple of people in the booth that night uh, working on the production. Uh, and then even, in fact, your brother, Wes, uh, went on, on Twitter and just kind of picked up on it. And that was nice that people did because it was very much me showing respect, uh, you know, to to the likes of John Ward and those, you know, that broadcast in this area. And I just thought, well, maybe I'll keep it going. And I kind of just still do it at the moment. And um, But every time I do it, it's, it's, it's with that kind of nod to, you know, to history. I, I love sporting history and, and great broadcasters uh, days gone by. So uh, I'll continue to do it for the time being in that, in that vein. And you've covered a number of historic events, whether it's iconic soccer events. We mentioned FA Cup finals and, and all kinds of other you know, exciting uh, contests in the soccer realm, but also the Olympics, Wimbledon, among others. I'm, in, I'm curious, before we get into soccer talk itself, what's been your most memorable non-soccer event to cover? Well, you mentioned um, you mentioned Wimbledon, and I think Tim, you and I talked a little bit about mm-hmm. this last year, mm-hmm. didn't we? And you know, I was fortunate enough to, to go to Wimbledon in a kind of reporting role. And, and you know, you, you, the thing when on the outer course of Wimbledon is you get to see a, great, a lot of great games that never really get much said about them because they're, they're, they're matches away from the, the kind of show courts. But Wimbledon is a quintessentially um, uh, you know English or British event. You know, it's strawberries and cream. It's Pims, it's um, you know, it, it's it's everything that, that's you know nice about a, a British sporting summer, and it and it stands almost alone for me uh, as one of those great kind of English summer sporting events. A little like going to a Test match cricket at uh, Lord's Cricket Ground. Um, I will throw in though because it was such an interesting life experience. I'll throw in uh, one an event you didn't mention there, but I got the chance in 2017 to go to Bermuda. Um, and all my colleagues at the time just thought, you know, how did you pull this one off, Tony? But I, it was, I spent a month in Bermuda covering the America's Cup. Uh, you know, it's n- never going to be one of the, you know, the biggest sporting events in, in the world. It's, it's something that will get, you know, minimal coverage in, in many ways across the globe. But it has an incredible history. It plays into that kind of history that I love about sports again. It's, it's an event that began in 1850 or something. Um, it's the oldest international sporting contest still going. And Britain we've never won it and we thought we had a chance of winning it so i convinced my bosses at the bbc which somebody's got to be there you know i mean if we win this this is historic somebody's got to go and i don't mind you know it's going to be a tough gig but i don't mind so (laughs) you'll take one for the team (laughs) i took one for the team and uh after about 18 months of lobbying and trying to come up with things and in a company like the bbc what you do is you go around to different departments and you see what they can put in the pot and so we went around every department we could possibly think of we got enough in the pot 
And then before I knew it, I spent a month in Bermuda covering the America's Cup and seeing New Zealand win it. Um, but an extraordinary sporting event in an amazing place. Um, I, I mean, actually, we did work extremely hard as well. I mean, we did kind of some 18-hour days um, because the, the one thing I took on by going was I was the only BBC person there. So anybody, whether it be the, the ra national radio networks or the television networks, the news networks, it was, well, we've got this guy in Bermuda here's his number. So I was, you know, I was working full on, but it was, it was a memorable event. And um, it got me used to the, the Tennessee weather actually for the summer. because it was pre It's pretty warm in um, Bermuda in June. I think they get a little more sun there maybe though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fewer storms. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were really drawn to the pageantry and the presentation of the NFL, uh, you know, as a young lad, uh, how has your perception of um, now covering soccer in this country, has MLS kind of adapted some of that? Is it, does it take more from the kind of the British or European style? What have you seen in the way that our sport is presented here? I think it's a quite good blend, actually, Tim. I think that, you know, I, one thing I'm, I'm conscious of is that, you know, um, as the league evolves, um, is that it, it, it needs to obviously it wants to compete us to a certain extent with you know with Europe, um, and at times it wants to replicate some of the you know some of the good things of European mm -hmm. soccer. But also, I, I think you know you want to keep that unique aspect. This is Major League Soccer. This is America. This is the way America does it, and America does some of these aspects much better for me than anywhere else when it comes to presentation and it comes to branding and and selling, you know, the, the actual project, as it were. So I, I think it's about getting the right blend. And I think it, it's pretty much there. And I know that, you know, broadcast coverage, media coverage is evolving all the time. I mean, you, you look at the amount of podcasts and things that are around now, and uh, it, it's fantastic for me to see the kind of exposure Major League Soccer is now starting to get, the amount of people who are covering the sport. Um, but also, you know, I think we're on a, on a journey. You know, we're on another leg of the journey, aren't we? We, we talk about MLS, you know, 2.0. You know, we're moving into another era of it now. And, of course, there are some, you know, some big media rights deals and things down, down the pipe, you know, that are obviously going to perhaps set the trajectory beyond the World Cup in 2026. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. And I think we're all a part of that kind of machine. And, and we all want to help, you know, the product to continue to get better and for the, you know, the, the viewers to continue to be educated. And I think getting a little bit of blend of some people who've been over in Europe and can bring some of that expertise over together with some of the very, very fine voices that are doing it from over here. Um, hopefully that's a good path. Some of the on-field things are uh, borderline unique in the world of soccer. Obviously, you have mentioned extensively that you kind of came up as a, a fan of American sports. But when you came over to commentate for Nashville SC, did you have to adapt or even study things like salary caps, like a lack of promotion relegation and how that impacts the MLS product? Did you have to learn about all that stuff or was it kind of built in as, as somebody who's been an NFL follower? Well, I had a kind of a bit of a head start when it came to things like drafts. Um, mm -hmm. and salary caps uh, and things like that. Um, but yeah, the intricacies of, you know, of, of DPs, uh, of the whole roster build. Um, and I kind of think of it as Tam Gam, thank you, ma'am, you know, trying <laughs> to kind of work out all these different kind of designations that players can have. And now, of course, we've got young DPs coming in to the league as, uh, as well. Um, I mean, it does take some time. I think we're kind of blessed at Nashville, though, in that, you know, we, we have some, some great people uh, around the club. And in the general manager, Mike Jacobs, um, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to sit down with him 
Uh, and I think on one occasion, you know, we, we stretched to four and a half hours over coffee um, with him just helping me understand the roster build and how you put this the, the, this group together. Um, because if that is a unique aspect to it, you know, anywhere else in the in most of the world league that I would follow, um, you know, you're essentially just trying to buy the, the very best players of the budget you've got. Um, here, there's almost an acknowledgement, you know, you, you're going to have little groups, clusters with, within your roster, uh, which means you're going to have, you know, quite wide ranging, you know, group that comes together. And I think that's fascinating then to see, you know, who are the coaches that can, can actually make a quite disparate group of players, if you like, in ability-wise, who can make them good? And, you know, you look at the likes of clearly Bruce Arena, you know, they, they have people like him have obviously got a very, very good knack of getting a group together and bringing the best out of them. And I think we're very fortunate in Nashville that, you know, we're seeing it with Gary Smith and Mike Jacobs and all the staff as well, in that, you know, they've built this, this group from day one. And, you know, the, the, the answer is they've done pretty well so far, I would say. <laughs> Yeah. How do you see this team evolving? You know, we're only about 20% of the way through the 2021 season. How do you see it in comparison to last year? And how do you see it kind of evolving and growing as a team? I think the evolution has gone a lot more quickly than they possibly Mm -hmm. anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's huge pros to, you know, to kind of outperforming what many people thought you would do in a year one. I mean, I think that, you know, this year, the, the, the kind of the word for the season, the theme for the season has been kind of keep building. I think a year ago, when Nashville kicked off against Atlanta uh, on that February 29th night, I think if somebody said, well, what do you think year two's kind of slogan is going to be? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you said, well, it may be something like, you know, start building. We've got through year one. Now we mm-hmm. start the build. Well, they built so well in year one that now this is keep it going and keep keep building. Um, and and how, you, how you judge success this year, I think, you know, it's something – that you need to take time and be considered about because of course the team made it all the way to an Eastern conference semi-final last year. Now that is a fantastic achievement for an expansion club, particularly an expansion club built, you know, in a, in a steady and organic way um, by Nashville. Now I think they will be a better team and they're showing, they're already shown this season that they can be a better team than last season, but it doesn't always mean that necessarily you're going to make it to an Eastern conference semi-final. We hope they do, but you know, that's the nature of, playoff soccer and one and done sport isn't it so uh, I think they're in a good you know a really good place um, and you know I would think I would think that progress will continue throughout this season uh, and it'll be really interesting it'll be very interesting to see you know just just what we're reflecting on you know come November time. Well, Tony as a fellow broadcaster for this club and an enthusiast in that realm I'm not going to let you get away without a couple more broadcast questions I'm curious when you came over part of the appeal I'm sure of this job was getting to travel to New York and Los Angeles and Seattle and and hopefully that that opportunity will come for you here in, in the coming you know, <laughs> months and and years and all of that but I wonder had you had much experience doing the remote broadcast thing um it's something we both had to had to manage and i did a bit in usl as well for those road matches but but how do you prepare differently for a match and maybe execute a match broadcast differently when you're sitting in a studio rather than sitting in a booth looking down at the pitch yeah that's a really good point i think wes because actually i was looking back at the the game we did at uh rail salt lake which was our first uh game that we did uh, off tube if you like is what we call it in the industry um uh, a couple of weeks ago and it, it was noted i noticed straight off just how different it is doing it and how different the commentary actually did sound on television. Because I think you're falling back on a lot more information because, of course, you only have the pictures that the television viewer is seeing. Mm-hmm. So you're not 
always aware of what's happening around the ground. You're not seeing things. You're not necessarily always seeing moves develop across the field because the camera might have gone quite tight. Um, and so you're kind of, I, I noticed how I was falling back on more information about the stadium and about the place and where Nashville were, um, and maybe a little bit more statistical information. Um, it, it's definitely, a, a, you know, it's, it's a challenge that is, it's one that we've often done. I mean, I've done it before in the UK. I mean, it's not just something that's come out of the, the pandemic that, that we do, you know, remote broadcasting. Um, but there's obviously no substitute for being in the stadium if you can be there. Uh, I always remember back in uh, the games in Dallas last year that, you know, there was a free kick taken on the right-hand side. And um, on our screen, there was one guy standing over it and he was going to curl it in right-footed. So I, I said, I can't remember who it was, you know, somebody's going to, you know, Paul McCall's going to float this in right-footed. And then suddenly from outside of the shot, somebody stepped into the shot and curled it in left-footed, but they hadn't been in the frame of the camera. <laughs> so, you know, so moments like that happen, um, you know, when you're doing the game remotely. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate that, you know, like you have with, with John Freeman and, you know, I have with, with Jamie, you've got a you know, fantastic broadcast partner alongside you. So it, that certainly makes it easier, but it, it brings about, you know, more challenges you're very much you know in the hands of the the host broadcaster um uh, you know and in most most cases you know that's fine they do a pretty good job um but it's certainly different from being there watching the game with your own eyes i'm sure you're sitting there crossing your fingers like please don't let this club's first ever game-winning goal be something that's out of the shot or something i can't <laughs> which it ended <laughs> up being right. great nice counterattack. uh so uh my last question you're accustomed to calling matches for a for a traditional english audience who has you know more than 100 years of history rooted in the game generations upon generations of teaching the game to each other in the U.S., you're speaking to a wide array of fans, some of whom are like that and are tactical wizards, while others might just be getting to know the game. And, and part of the job of this broadcast team and of ours as well is to build that enthusiasm among this growing fan base. So how do you modify your broadcast approach with the kind of such diverse range of audience members in mind? Yeah, that's it. That's interesting, actually, because I, I always take the view um, and I have to remind myself sometimes this, you know, never assume never assume that your audience knows exactly what you're talking about when you when you get off in onto a point you know always try and put it in context and you know you, we are in a world of intense competition you know when people turn their television on or indeed now their streaming device you know whatever they're watching broadcast on there are so many choices out there and we we are uh, you know really now in a very very interesting phase in in the world of of television full stop and sports broadcasting as we see the advent of streaming technology and all these different things come in. And we see now, uh, you know, I was fascinated to just throw back to the NFL, you know, the Nickelodeon broadcast they did last year, you know, with the guns tank in the, in the end zone and things <laughs> like that. Um, you know, we're fighting for the attention of fans and casual viewers alike because we want to grow the game as wide as possible. We want people to support this Nashville team and, and, and see the success. And we're lucky that we're in such a great city here that, look, if, if the team in whatever sport is wearing a Nashville shirt, then they want to support them. Um, but yeah, you, my, my kind of MO with it is that, you know, we, we've got to make sure that, you know, you, you, you keep the interested people interested, but you also make the disinterested a bit more interested. So I like to inject a bit of drama into the game, you know, at Rail Salt Lake, look, it's not a game we're going to think back and, and, and you know, dwell on for, for years to come, is it? You know, it was a largely forgettable good point. Um, but it was still nil-nil going into the last minute. And I still feel it's my responsibility to keep that element of jeopardy there because it only takes a second to score a goal. The drama could still come. Um, 
But keep it what, you know, keep that context there. And I will fall back on the likes of Jamie, who does a great job sometimes with a tactical insight into things. Um, but even in the way he presents, I think he's one of the best at this, is that he'll take a quite deep tactical point, but he'll actually explain why that's happening. And I think that's a big duty for us, you know, as a, a fledgling TV crew, in, you know, in a new market for, for Major League Soccer, um, you know, to grow this audience and get people excited. And, you know, certainly the feedback when I chat to people is that, you know, they, they enjoy it. Uh, and, and they also have a bit of fun watching us. I think that's really, really important. Somebody that we had on a couple of weeks ago, Alexi Lawless, regularly says there may be more ignorant to soccer U.S. fans than there are in, in England, for example. But those who are engaged might be the, some of the most knowledgeable fans in the world. Do you see that? You've obviously experienced both sides of the pond. Do you see that those who really care about soccer here uh, have more knowledge than maybe they're given credit for globally, I guess? Absolutely, Tim. No, I, that's that's very, very true. I, I think the way that um, some of the soccer uh, audience over here drills down into some of the statistics uh, uh, is is beyond would never. many. <laughs> <laughs> and you do a fine job of doing it as well. Um, but, you know, some of, some of the um, intricate details that you'll get into, mm -hmm. um, I think is beyond what many, many, um, British soccer fans would do mm -hmm. because back in back in Britain, if you kind of grow up with it, it can almost be sometimes a bit of a laziness towards it. You know, it's like, well, I don't really want to, you know, oh, I know the game, you know, so I'm not going to, you know, not going to get too worried about some of these expected goals statistics or whatever. And um, but no, I, I I think you know somebody said to me before I came over, Ian Dark, the ESPN broadcaster, said to me, you know. Um, some people have come over here sometimes and been a little bit arrogant about, you know, I'm coming from England. We created the game and, you know, and bringing, trying to help, you know, you people understand the game and all that. And, I mean, that's not my nature in any way, but also I, I, I'm blown away really by just, just how, you know, soccer intelligent um, many, many of the audience are and what they're following. And it's actually helped me in many ways because, uh, you know, I, I didn't cover, many of the European leagues or, or pay too much attention to what was going on in Germany or Italy or Spain, you know, other than the obvious kind of stuff um, when you're back in England, because you're generally full on Premier League or whatever. Um, now over here now, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I know more about what's going on in Syria and the Bundesliga um, and Liga MX, you know, which I'm really a complete novice to. Um, so it's helping me because so many of the people in the soccer community that I'm now, you know, privileged to be part of are, you know, are right across what's going on. Um, and, you know, so you never stop learning, you know, a soccer education goes on a lifetime and, you know, this is a really good phase of it for me. Have you found that people over here find ways to watch league one so they can catch up with Plymouth Argyle? I have, I, I have indeed. <laughs> yes. The, the, the iFollow service in the, in the UK and then ESPN plus has it. Um, and uh, I think Wes has occasionally uh, sent me a message about the old Plymouth result. <laughs> yeah. um, so, it, no, it's, it's great to be able to cover the team. And another season in League One back into us next year. I just hope it's better than this one. But, of course, I mean, it's been a hard, hard year over in England. You know, generally the stadium shut all year. Um, and then, you know, come the new season, I know they are absolutely desperate to, you know, to get the fans back in and, and, uh, and enjoy some soccer. And I, I'll be looking forward to watching from afar as well. The Pilgrims enjoying their break before next season. Hopefully you enjoy the international break before hopping back into action. You can catch Tony and Jamie Watson along with Kelly Glendinning on MyTV30 every broadcast for Nashville SC. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. No, Wes, Tim, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And as I said, you know, you keep up the good work and spreading, spreading the message of soccer 
and uh, you know keep covering it the way you are here in Nashville. Thanks, Tony. Thanks. Special thanks to Tony for joining us. You can hear his match calls and the highlights like the one you heard before his interview on MyTV30 for the vast majority of matches this year. When national TV has the call, he moves over to radio and works with John Freeman and myself. Tim, I think the thing that, that jumps out to me the most about Tony is that he doesn't come across the pond with a sense of soccer superiority. He's very curious about this audience and this market, and not just when it comes to soccer, but also things like college football and hockey. He seems very interested in becoming part of this community and not just bringing his own voice to this market. Yeah, before we got to know Tony, I was a little worried that Nashville SC kind of said, let's go find us an English voice. And that's what's going to be uh, sounding like a legitimate soccer broadcast. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have been more wrong. Tony is an awesome guy. He's not only somebody who knows the sport very well, but he's very appreciative of American culture. He's very appreciative of American sport and the way American sports are called on television. It's something that he's kind of blended in with his long history of, of calling soccer, but he's also called NFL games in, in Europe or in England as well. So he's a guy who has just this broad base of knowledge. And of course, as we, as we both know, and I think most people who have interacted with him know, he's also a great dude, really good conversation with Tony. And I'm, I'm really glad that he joined us. And it was fun to go down with him to the supporters tailgate before the Austin match because his eyes were wide. I mean, it was something (laughs) that, you know, he hadn't gotten to experience yet Mm -hmm. with this club, obviously the first tailgate since February of, of 2020. Don't need to remind you guys of that, but it was neat to see him relishing that experience. And we were down there to get interviews, but I think he might just go down and and hang out (laughs) a little more. It was, it was a great gathering and fun to see his perspective on that. Thanks to Tony again for joining us. Let's move on now and, and get back to tactics in a segment that we like to call embrace consensus because we do typically agree and i think uh to forecast this one we might hear as well the question is this nashville switched to a 4-4-2 late against atlanta and it resulted in a pair of goals from hani mukhtar who normally hasn't started in that 4-4-2 formation but who adjusted and, and fit it in these moments in a pretty crucial way so with two goals against new england and one against austin that's now more than half the season scoring output in a formation that this club would consider to be secondary to the traditional 4-2-3-1 that Gary Smith typically employs. So we've asked this in the past, but I think it's important, Tim, that we revisit this. Should the 4-4-2 become Nashville's base, its go-to formation, instead of that 4-2-3-1? I don't know if I'm just being stubborn or if I've, I've given it the analytical level of of uh, look that we usually would like to do, but I, I still say no. When you look at the goals that were scored, um, the, the two against New England were a set-piece goal. Um, it was kind of the second phase of a set-piece, but it was at the end of a set-piece situation. It was not in a settled offense. And then a bad giveaway by the opponent. Against Austin, it was a transition and a cross from a striker to the winger. Those are ex- these uh, This Saturday were essentially broken plays in the Atlanta box. There's not a ton that the formation had to do with it. That's not to say it's a bad formation, although I, I do continue to doubt its utility as a base approach. This is more about the guys making the most of the opportunities that they do get. That's a, a Jimmy's and Joe's problem, as you said in the intro to this podcast, whereas generating offensive chances is really what the X and O approach is designed to do. The 4 2 3 1 hasn't been the reason that some good chances were missed this season because they've been generated out of that 4 2 3 1. And the players, you know, just coincidentally, I think, have, have managed to finish a few more of them out of the 4 4 2 than we've seen when they've found those chances in the 4 2 3 1. In true form for this podcast, I'm going to entirely agree with you. And I think when you look at the personnel, you saw Hani Mukhtar line up on the outside on that 4 4 2 late as Nashville made the adjustments to, to be very attack heavy. But I don't think that's a sustainable solution in starting matches. You're not going to uproot Randall Leal. 
You're just not. He's going to play on the wing, usually the left. He can also play the right if he needs to as well. And Alex Muel provides exactly the kind of box to final third stability this club demands. And so then when you look at the two in central midfield, do you replace, what, Dax McCarty with Hani there and go extreme attacking? I don't think you can you can lose Dax's stability. Uh, and you know he has the eye for, for still moving forward as well. And then, you know, Anibal Godoy has, has been the catalyst for a number of Nashville's best chances this year, uh, launching the, the quick transitions in, in midfield into the final third. I, I think the 4-4-2 can remain a prime option late in matches with an attack-heavy group, especially with the depth Nashville has at striker, where you do have uh, the, the ability to depend on a couple of players, and one at least coming in late. If you do want two strikers on the field to start the match, or at least two striker-minded players, that they could come soon in a 4-2-3-1, because Abu Dhanladi can play on the wing in that formation. If you really need to attack and break somebody down, out of the 4-2-3-1, you can keep Hani in midfield. You can bring Dunlady in down the right side. You saw Nashville do that in Orlando and score a pretty early goal, granted off a set piece, but testing Orlando's defense going over the top. And as direct as Nashville sometimes likes to play, and, and even for counterattacks, I think that can be a really strong option out of that 4-2-3-1 if you want to bring something different. But I, I don't think a 4-4-2 is necessarily the full-time answer myself either. Yeah, you can also use Don Baji in a similar way that you just mentioned about sure. Don Lottie. He came into this club, and I believe his uh, first three or four starts last year came as a winger rather than as a striker. So that's another thing to keep in mind. But one thing I will say in favor of the 4-4-2 is that it does help the team defensively. It's not because um, they defend better when they are in the 4-4-2, because they defend from a 4-4-2 even when their offensive formation has just one striker. But it is a little bit less effort intensive. It doesn't require them to run up and down the field quite as much. And that allows them to put the pressure on a little bit more when they are in a defensive posture. They have the ability to press the opponent a little bit more. We saw that turn into the wheel goal against New England. I think that was um, much more a factor of, of Nashville being able to press harder because they hadn't run themselves ragged during that game. So that's something that that definitely is an option. And it's a reason that the 4-4-2 is not going to go away at all. And the best thing you can be as a club, as a manager, is flexible. It is great to know that Nashville can move to a 4-4-2, not experience significant drop-off, and adjust if there are injuries, international break call-ups, and other issues there. So what's optimal is not always what's going to be ideal every time. And Nashville can adjust also based on on the needs of the opponent. You know, if it's a team that's uh, that's going to be pretty attack heavy. A four four two could work to send the ball the other way and have two target men there instead of the one, instead of building through the middle like Nashville would prefer to do. So I definitely think that flexibility is an asset. Yeah, and you mentioned the international break too. And, and previously you mentioned Randall Layal is not coming off the field. Well, he might be out, outside of, of uh, Nashville for a pretty significant stretch uh, for the Gold Cup later this summer. So that's something when there isn't the personnel that you'd love to have available. Maybe it is a little bit more tactically flexible to be able to have the 4-4-2 and say, okay, we'll slide Hani Mukhtar over there into the role that Leal would otherwise be playing. And the 4-4-2 now makes a lot more sense. Well, thanks for the debate. Thanks for the agreement, as always. Yeah. And uh, we, will... we, we went at each other's throats with that one. <laughs> we really did, man. Got some marks. <laughs> we really left there. We'll try. Our, our goal, our homework over the international break, is we're going to keep this thing churning during the break, is to find fierce disagreement. That's our, our goal. So far, uh, we have failed. Let's move on to the mailbag. Maybe we can disagree on some of these. Uh, Glenn reaches out and he asks, you know, given Josie Altidore's fall from favor in Toronto, reports are that, that he's practicing separately from the team right now because of some contract issues and challenges maybe with Chris Armas and, and the technical staff. 
Does he represent an opportunity for Nashville to spend its reserves of general allocation money as Nashville still has a treasure trove uh, of resources to to invest in somebody at some point this year? And John Mueller uh, comes along with that as well, with Josie's situation in Toronto being what it is. Would he be a better fit for Nashville SC than yonder? Mike Jacobs has all that allocation money. It's got to be spent at some point. Tim, your thoughts? Josie Altidore is a player that I have defended a lot from a U.S. men's national team perspective. But when you look at the way Nashville SC is built, he does not really represent valuing the undervalued, Mm -hmm. except in one way. He's clearly on the outs with Toronto, as you mentioned. So if they let him go cheaply, if it doesn't take a lot of gam in that trade, the acquisition cost for a DP caliber player could be low. Usually when you acquire a DP, you expect to have to spend a lot of cash or or trade massive amounts of allocation money. Um, His salary is still going to be high no matter what. He is still going to be a DP. So um, paying him $3.6 million a year versus under a million for Jean Dercades. Are you going to get, you know, three times as much production from Josie as you would from Jander? I can't say that uh, affirmatively or, or negatively for certain, but it definitely seems like something where when Josie does have the injury history that he does and, and Nashville's other striker options have, have been um, a little bit limited at times this year, Daniel Rios out, Abu Damari out, Don Baji twisted his ankle on Saturday. We don't know when he's going to be able to come back. Picking up another guy that has a long injury history would be pretty risky, even if it is a little bit of a a lower price point than you would expect for a player like that. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it fits in that counting cards mentality Mm -hmm. that Mike Jacobs likes to uh, to communicate that that he follows, where you're looking for ways to minimize uncertain variables and injuries of course are are the most uh, challenging variable (laughs) most unpredictable but in his case it's almost predictable that he will be I I can't see him coming to Nashville at the price tag that Nashville will be willing to pay and I think there's such depth at that striker spot that you know yes chance finishing has been a challenge at times this year but I don't think that they are going to spend that much money uh, even if it's a little discounted on on somebody like Josie Altidore with the history that, that he has John Cade asks if there's any reason to be concerned after a couple of defensive lapses against Atlanta. Yeah, I think whenever there's something that goes wrong, you definitely take a pretty skeptical eye at it. There's a little reason to be worried, especially because in Atlanta, they went poorly in ways that we haven't seen go poorly for Nashville before. So it's kind of, you know, we talk about adding a, a new tool to the belt when they do something well. That's kind of the opposite. It's, it's the opponents being able to add a new tool to the belt. But we've also seen this national team quickly learn from its mistakes in the past. You see a major goof in the first game, and then you don't see it again for the rest of the year. That's happened two years in a row. It's happened uh, in the middle of seasons over the course of each of the past two years. Taking a step down from being completely infallible is, is obviously a disappointment. It was awesome to be infallible. I think I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. <laughs> but projecting forward, I don't think there's too much to be concerned about as long as they learn from the mistakes as well as they have in the past. 414 is the magic number. That's how many minutes Nashville SC went without allowing a goal. So I'm with you. A defensive lapse, especially in that atmosphere, on turf, a surprise over-the-top ball, well-placed by Miles Robinson. It was not the play that Dave Romney is typically going to make. And I think we, we certainly know that by now. Really quickly, a shout out to Scott, who kind of expressed some skepticism to me about Dave Romney. Well, well, we're in the mailbag here. And I, yeah. my response was, you know, we don't see him make those sorts of mistakes very frequently. The mistakes that he does make are typically not punished because he's choosing his spots to be a, maybe a little bit more risk taking and all of those sorts of things. So I wouldn't be too concerned about him individually either. No, no way. My partner in the radio booth, John Freeman, tweeted a stat before the Atlanta match. I don't know how this was classified against Atlanta, that that MLS keeps a stat called errors, which is basically a mistake that leads directly to a shot on goal. Dave Romney had not made one during his tenure in Nashville. 
So I, I've not checked to see if MLS counted that as an error, even if it did. One in a, a year plus, not so bad. Zach asks, how big of a hit do you think Nashville's offensive presence will take after Baji's tweak late against Atlanta while the club waits for Daniel Rios to come back and Abu Dalati as well? The front line's been gaining momentum. Does this hurt the prospect of solid consistency during and after the international break? And and I'll say at first, we don't know yet what the prognosis is with Don Baji. He, he did suffer a tweak, somehow stayed in the match through some grit and determination late and and would hope certainly that he's not out for an extended period of time. But But for the sake of this question, we're not saying he will. We're just working with the possibility that he could. Yeah, other than Baji's positional flexibility, as I mentioned previously, he can play out on the wing if needed. He gives a little bit of flexibility to the formation and to the to the setup. But Rios as a striker is going to be ahead of Baji as a striker on the depth chart. So with Daniel Rios having been in full training for about two weeks by the time people listen to this podcast – it's just been a matter of getting him back into the tactical setup, not about rehabbing that injury anymore. So I would expect him to be back immediately. Obviously, Gary Smith is very happy to give him another 20 days off to, to get a little bit more rest as as the club prepares to get him back into the lineup. I think with Rios healthy, I, I don't want to say Baji's surplus to requirements, but I think it's much less damaging than it would have been in other situations. Final question touches on the long game for this club. The near term of course is winning as many matches as possible, winning championships, but the long game is developing talent that can be sold and create a churn of, of cash for this club that they can then reinvest. So Robert asks which current consistent starting player offers the most trade slash selling value during the next open window. Do we see people being shipped out? Do we, do we try once again to get a low-cost, high-producing forward in the next window? A loaded question full of good stuff to discuss here. I think Nashville's most sellable pieces are guys that are too important to the lineup to let go. You know, you mentioned kind of a consistent starting player. Obviously, Nashville runs with pretty much the same lineup as much as possible. And that means that they don't want to get rid of any of those guys. Uh, you aren't going to find Randall layall level production somewhere else. Unless you lose money in the transaction, you're going to have to spend more than you, you spend on Randall layall to get the same level of production. He's already kind of that valuing the undervalued sort of philosophy that we talk about all the time. I think it's a similar sort of thing with, with Brian Anunga, who's not a, a starter, but is a guy who gets plenty of playing time when he's healthy or Alistair Johnston. Alistair Johnston is on a rookie contract. That's an incredible value to get a guy who's basically a locked in starter mm -hmm. obviously the longer term prognosis for those guys is they can be profitable for nashville sc to move them along and i think especially alistair johnston who uh, people didn't realize had this sort of potential now that nashville has unlocked it i think he would kind of look across the pond to europe if that opportunity arises for him the only one that I think is really in question is, is Yonder Cotties. And I think we've been extremely clear that we expect the purchase clause from Benfica to be ex exercised exactly because he's a good bargain for the production that he provides Nashville SC. If they were willing to shell out for a big name DP forward, and we just talked about Josie Altidore for, for quite some time, maybe you, you would see the value in doing that. But at the same time, Cotties is a value option right now. And I don't know that the sale price were Nashville to, to, be able to move his contract with it. They would have to exercise that purchase option first. I don't know that they would profit off of it anyway. feels like things are in a bit of a holding pattern for Nashville Soccer Club. And it'll be interesting to see whose value continues to increase and at what point those sales happen. But I tend to agree with you that it's tough to, to see that happening in the near term. 
Yeah, and, and one thing to note that's pretty important is that this is a young franchise still. In the future, I think they'll be much more willing to move along successful pieces because there will be kind of a pipeline. They'll have a base of talent built up over the years, and it won't just be, these are our starting 11. They're our top 11 guys. We can't really afford to let go of any of them because we don't have that base built up yet. And that's why you've seen Nashville SC go out and acquire, quote, homegrown players, and they can acquire that homegrown status as well. If you don't use those roster spots for homegrown players, you lose them anyway. So might as well bring those guys in, put them on loan in the case of a guy like Nick Hines and see how they can develop moving forward. Maybe they become guys you can sell in the future. Let's move outside in. Let's first stick in Major League Soccer and take a glance, Tim, at the Eastern Conference table where Nashville technically outside a playoff spot on points in eighth place. Points per game has them in seventh, a three-way tie, 1.57 points per game as Nashville's behind New York City FC, ahead of Columbus on goal differential. But the first tiebreaker, which you just love and and can't stop (laughs) praising, is wins instead of goal differential. Yeah, it's always weird to me because a team with more wins on the same number of points inherently has more losses. So by making wins the first (laughs) tiebreaker, you are devaluing win percentage at a certain level of points. It's so frustrating to me. I think when you look at goal differential is such a better uh, explanation of who is a, a more quality team. And it's, I understand the reason uh, MLS does it. They want teams to go out and try to get wins. They don't want them to settle for draws and accumulate points. Um, so I understand the reasoning behind it, but in terms of kind of uh, comparing who the actual best teams are, it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive. All the more reason for Nashville SC to go out and start banking those wins for sure. Mm-hmm. Two wins, five draws, you're unbeaten. And that counts for something, I think, maybe more than you, at least from a you know morale standpoint, to be able to say that too. And yet, it's not going to help you much if you don't end up banking those wins uh, down the road. Call-ups are official for the international break as all kinds of tournaments are going on. Nations League, World Cup qualifying, Copa America, the Euros are going on. All those won't impact Nashville SC. Uh, walk us through, Tim, who's getting called up where, and then let's talk for just a second about the impact that that could have on Nashville SC moving forward. The United States and Costa Rica are participating in the final round, which would be the semifinals and the final of the CONCACAF Nations League. None of Nashville's United States men's national team players, which um, realistically only means Lovitz and Zimmerman at this point in their careers, got called up. Uh, but Randall Leal did get called up for Costa Rica. He will play against the United States after the Nations League or potentially if they meet in a third place game or the championship round of of the Nations League, they will play two days apart. <laughs> the Costa Ricans and Americans will get very familiar with each other. Um, in terms of World Cup qualifiers, you have uh, two players from CONCACAF. That's Anibal Godoy from Panama, Alistair Johnston from Canada. They have a pair of games this week. If they advance from their respective groups, they have a two-legged tie against another group winner. They will not play each other. Um, those matchups are set and they will not play each other. So um, they will have two more games. So it'll be a four game window if they win their groups uh, over the course of this next week. And then a somewhat surprising call up. Um, he was on the provisional roster, but Jander Cadiz called to Venezuela, which is uh, a much more uh, high caliber national team than maybe you might expect of Canada or even Panama. This is a team that also called uh, Atlanta United's Joseph Martinez, who I think we called uh, the greatest striker, potentially the greatest striker in MLS history in our preview last week. Mm-hmm. So if he impresses enough, could he be called to the Copa America? And that would take him out of Nashville for uh, the, the remainder of June and, and through the beginning of July. And with that purchase option coming up on June 30th, if Nashville were to not exercise that purchase option, it's weird to think, but this could have been the last game that we saw Jean Ducati's wear gold. 
But I, again, we've been very clear that we believe that Nashville will exercise that purchase option. And I also am going to go out on a limb here and say he will not be in the Copa America roster. So certainly uh, these two World Cup qualifiers that they're playing um, against Uruguay and Bolivia, I would expect him to be a bench option and maybe come in late, but he's probably not going to get a ton of playing time unless things get really weird for Venezuela. And if you're listening and you did not catch us last week and you'd like to hear our justification for why we both believe John Arcadiz's loan should be purchased by Nashville SC and he should be a part of the club for at least the rest of the season, be sure to give that a listen. Last week's episode touches on that in in great detail. It gets into the metrics and some of the rationale behind that as well. The Gold Cup, Brenda Leal, Godoy, Johnson should get called up if Nashville will release them, but clubs do have an option to hold on to players and release them for that because there's not an international break around that July 10th through August 1st. Uh, And then Greg Berhalter has announced that Walker Zimmerman will be in the U.S. squad. So that's the bigger test, really, right? We hope that all these guys stay healthy over this break. If they do, they're going to come back and they're not going to miss any matches from the first international break. Gold Cup, a whole different animal. Yeah, and the interesting quirk with the Gold Cup is that after the group stage, which we expect the United States to advance out of, there's an opportunity to basically shuffle the majority of your team. I believe you can make you can replace like half the roster to move into the knockout stages. So it, even if Walker Zimmerman plays in those group stage games and it goes well and Nashville says, hey, man, we need him back, Greg. <laughs> we need that guy. He is the MLS defensive MVP last year. I think there's a pretty good chance that he could return to Nashville. Obviously the European based players are a little less likely to play in the gold cup just because they are based across the ocean, but they're also out of season right now. So there's a really good chance that uh, you can make a compelling argument that you don't need to, to take the guy who's in season and have Nashville miss him for as much as almost a month. So I think, when you look at what Walker Zimmerman provides to the U.S. men's national team, he is the exact sort of player you want as a compliment to John Anthony Brooks. But I think he's the exact sort of player that Gary Smith wants uh, running his <laughs> own back line. So yes. it'll be interesting to see the, the push and pull between the U.S. men's national team and, and potentially Nashville SC. It is safe to say that a summer of international soccer with all the tournaments we have going on is probably torture, probably just pure out hell for a general manager and, and for a head coach. And yet, it is heaven for fans who want to see a whole lot of soccer. As we head into the final whistle, I want to talk about the stretch of soccer that's probably the most underrated out of all these, and that's the stretch coming up starting later this week. The CONCACAF World Cup qualifying at the stage that it's at. Now, of course, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying is a huge deal once the U.S. enters, but they're not part of it yet. And you've got smaller nations competing against each other. The biggest ones you're going to see are... Alistair Johnston's Canada, Anibal Godoy's Panama, and a lot of smaller nations that, that know most of them don't have much of a chance to reach even the next stage of qualifying. Only one group winner out of these typically five-team groups is going to advance. And yet, it's incredible to watch because you get to tap into a different soccer culture and some different storylines. So I recommend, for my content recommendation, checking out some, some lower-level CONCACAF soccer. Watch Alistair Johnston for Canada take on Aruba. Uh, and Suriname, which is going to be a huge match, probably going to decide that group and whether Canada will advance. Watch Anibal Godoy for Panama. It's going to be compelling, but there are some other cool storylines too. You've got countries like Montserrat, Suriname, and Curacao 
that have a number of players who whose families have moved abroad or have roots, maybe passports there, who can play for those countries. So you have British players coming in and playing for Montserrat. You have Dutch players playing for Suriname and Curacao, even though they perhaps have only visited a few times or, or never lived there. And so you've got internationals from these loaded European countries that are not going to make the Netherlands team or, or England's but have considerable talent and can really be a fly in the ointment of countries like Canada, like Panama, who want to advance. Also, you get to see some random pitches that you'll never get to see otherwise. Some cricket fields sometimes that are used as uh, cricket grounds, I think the term is, rather, that are used as soccer pitches. Tim, it's just the kind of content that you're not going to find when you are watching the World Cup. It's, it's, It's wholly different, but not necessarily inferior. Yeah, this is going to make me change what my what my recommendation was going to be because I have to shout out John Arnold's fantastic Get CONCACAF newsletter. I think we've already recommended it before in the past, but you will learn so much about these smaller CONCACAF nations. It's incredible. Curacao is coming into a golden generation for the re- reasons that you mentioned. They might beat out Guatemala to win Group C. That's a really compelling storyline if you follow CONCACAF a lot. It's something that's really incredible. It's awesome. And you can catch those matches. I believe Paramount Plus will have mm-hmm. a lot of those qualifiers. If you're not subscribing to, to them, it's, it's good to do as a soccer fan anyway. There's a lot of other content you're going to be able to get, and they're not paying us to say this. Uh, but it, it is Sponsor really compelling stuff. That's right. Oh, yes, please. But it's the same reason that I like watching the League 2 playoff between Newport County and Morecambe. You know, that to me is almost as fun as watching Liverpool-Manchester United. Like, not because of the quality necessarily, but because of the storylines and the passion, which sometimes could be even greater and more and organic. And the stakes, the stakes feel bigger, even though they're in an absolute sense much smaller than, than a Liverpool-Man City game. They feel bigger. They mean more to a lot of the fans. Yeah, and we cover these things in a binary way sometimes. We tend to, um, you know, as as fans of, you know, are they going to advance? Are they not? But the growth within the group is compelling too. I don't think Montserrat has much of a shot of winning its group anymore based on its early results. And yet, they have a chance to pull off some upsets and to grow their their product and, you know, three, four years from now to attract some of these other talents uh, across across the pond into this tiny nation, half of which was depopulated due to a horrific volcano like the the diaspora and the resulting impact on soccer is massive. And if you like the intersection of soccer and culture, as we are obsessed with ourselves, <laughs> then it is certainly something to, to keep an eye on. And yeah, I, I also subscribe to John's newsletter and wholly recommend it. It is awesome. MLS fantasy update. Basically, we don't want to talk about it right now because we're having a hard time. Are you checking your team now? I'm at least checking my team. Or are you I, conveniently uh, letting? I, I checked mine. I, I don't believe I remembered to set my lineup, but I checked it going into the to the Seattle game, and it was not looking good. I did have three Seattle players in my lineup, so I was like, okay, maybe we can get a turnaround. I woke up Monday morning and saw that they had tied Austin, so that was not the the brightest uh, reason to go look up my fantasy team, and I don't think I will until I set it for next weekend. <laughs> got plenty of time over the international break two two weeks from now yeah i'm looking at the standings now i'm in seventh place in a bit of a holding pattern right now trying to to move up the table and tim oh no i'm scrolling i'm still scrolling 21st you're nearing relegation Plenty of time to uh, to chew on that and to try to move back up the table for both of us. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Special note of gratitude to Tony Husband for joining us on the show. Thanks to Moon Taxi for providing the music behind us, ESPN 94.9 and MyTV30. For the highlights, Tim, any final thoughts as we head into week one of the international break? Uh, not a whole lot. Everybody just remember to not only rate, review, and subscribe, but more importantly, 
if you enjoy what you're hearing, tell a friend about us. We would love to have more ears on our product and, and get a chance to learn a little bit more about not only Nashville SC, but also things like Curacao and, and Wickham. So uh, yeah, tell, tell a friend about us. We, we're always looking to have more people uh, get to hear the good word. And if you want to be the smartest person in the room about Nashville SC soccer, leave this podcast behind after this episode, come back next week and go to clubcountryusa.com and read everything that Tim has written. Thanks everybody. We will be back next week during the international break to get into some evergreen Nashville SC topics and really go deep on some things. We don't always have time to talk about during the rush game to game until then. So long. So long.